0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Chinelo Okparanta, author of the novel Harry Sylvester Bird*.
1: Right now in the U.S. and all over the world, things are quite depressing, but you know, That's why you write as well, so that you can have these conversations and find the little glimmers of hope.
0: We'll be back with Chinelo Okparanta after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show, hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews, hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show, and that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft: A Dialogue on Writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com/firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years, delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe and I hope you do too is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show. And it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show. I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash First Draft Writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Nigerian American novelist and short story writer Chinelo Okparanta. Her debut short story collection, Happiness Like Water, was nominated for the Nigerian Writers Award, longlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, and was a finalist for the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award. Her first novel, Under the Udolatries, was nominated for numerous awards, including the Kirkus Prize and Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. It was also a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. She is currently the Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at Swarthmore College. Her new novel, Harry Sylvester Bird, is named for its main character, who is a white young man who grows up in Pennsylvania with racist, xenophobic parents that he yearns to get away from. He moves to New York City to attend college and falls in love with a young Nigerian woman named Miriam. Their relationship exposes Harry Sylvester Bird's privilege and racist tendencies, and he must confront his identity in ways he never has before. We began the discussion with Chinelo Okparanta, sharing how she came up with the name Harry Sylvester Bird.
1: Well, that's a, a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. Um, the name Harry Sylvester Bird actually just came to me as his name randomly, and so I decided to go with it. But after I had gone with it, I did look up the name because I, I do like to make sure that names are meaningful in my work. So if you've read my debut novel, Under the Udala Trees, all the names in that novel mean something. But of course, they're in uh, my 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 first language, the Igbo language. But So in this case, with Harry Sylvester Byrd, I just wondered why would I suddenly just have this <laughs> this random name coming to me as the as the name of this character. And so I did look it up to make sure that it it matched the character that I wanted him to be. And it turned out that it did. So when I looked up the name Harry, you know, there are many definitions for Harry. Um, but some of the uh, definitions or meanings that I thought worked for who I wanted Harry to be was this idea of like a sort of agitated, flustered, young man or even a flustered, agitated, agitated child because of the kind of environment in which she grows up. Um, and then I looked up Sylvester and Sylvester means sort of um, wild. Um, a, a man from the forest, I think I saw as one of the definitions. And I also thought that that was fitting because the novel is sort of speaking back to um, socio political historical conversation surrounding race. Um, And so I thought, you know, there's a lot to say with a name, giving a name like Sylvester to a guy like Harry. Um, So I I thought it works. And then bird, um, and we all know the symbolic meanings of bird, you know, wisdom, freedom, hope, love. Um, We think about the dove, like sort of like peaceful, uh, a, a symbol of peace. Um, so for me, I focused more on that idea of the seeking of freedom, but also the seeking of peace, which we all know that though we seek peace, we don't always achieve peace. Um, and in the case of freedom, Harry is a character who wants to be free of the weight of, of history, but also of uh, more directly of this racist background and not only just the racism, actually, but like he grows up in a dysfunctional, abusive family. And so there is a very obvious desire to be free in the novel that I thought worked um, for him. Now, when some people hear the name, they've they've told me that, oh, they think about, you know, Sylvester, the cat. Um, and Tweety Bird from Looney Tunes. um, And that was actually not my intention.
0: And can you talk a little bit about who Harry is? You know, you mentioned he grew up with these very absent parents, Chevy and Wayne, who you mentioned as abusive. You know, they didn't love him or hug him and they were extremely racist and he was exposed to all of that. Um, But tell us more about creating Harry?
1: Well, Harry is, you know, just a young man who, you know, I somehow landed on when I decided to write this novel. And writing a novel, it just depends on your process. For this novel, it was um, several years in the making, and I can't actually pinpoint the moment where I had the idea that from the novel, but I can tell you different moments in time when I look back now, I can I can see the little nuggets that formed the, the novel. Um, but in any case, Harry is just a young man. Like you said, he grows up in a very racist family and in a very um, dysfunctional family in a racist town. He seeks to distance himself from that kind of upbringing and basically winds up hyper-correcting, right? He hyper-corrects Um, tries to seek justice in a way that does in fact make him culpable in the ways that he's trying to like distance himself Um, in the same ways that uh, of what he's trying to distance himself from Um, but so this results in a sort of um, depending on your perspective like a comical effect um, and sometimes you know seriously unfortunate effects. Um, And, uh, you know, there are moments in the novel because of Harry's behavior that uh, we as readers might find ourselves cringing. Um, But there are also the novel is also a very real in your face kind of novel. It's a depiction of, you know, where we are as a society and also not just as this national society, but also like globally. Um, it's an articulation of um, contemporary issues surrounding race and racism. Um, and in this case, its its focus is the Black African identity.
0: Yeah. And you, as you were saying that he overcorrects, he really wants to identify and bond with the Black community and the that's surrounding him. And he goes to college on a scholarship from the purists. And the purists are basically the white Aryan race that feels that if they pay for scholarships for people to go to college, then they'll owe them basically their allegiance later in life. Mm -hmm. And he ends up falling in love with a woman named Maryam. And she is from Nigeria. And he falls for her so hard. And I was wondering if you could read a paragraph. And this is not just like that he loves her. It's his first love. So he's really dealing with like losing his virginity and trying to be this good man and trying to save her. And she's experiencing racism in New York City at a nail salon. She keeps going to the nail salon and they keep saying, come back in three hours, come back in an hour. They just don't want to serve her. And I'm wondering if you can read this section when he's sort of reflecting on that.
1: I was baffled and offended on her behalf. So why was a part of me also a little relieved that she had been brought back down to reality by the male technicians? In fact, if I had to say it, I was more delighted than I wanted to be when the technician looked condescendingly at Miriam and then turned away. But then my guilt for having had the thought trickled out like syrup and I felt it spread through my mind and build up at the perimeter of my conscience into something like shame. Shame because while I had never understood myself as competitive, I now sensed a sort of competitive spirit in me. If I could not make her happy, I did not want anyone else to have that power. I reasoned that this desire to be the only one to please her was why I inappropriately gloated at her disappointment. Moreover, this strange sort of competitiveness surely was a remnant of my white self. I had to do something about it.
0: So I just thought this encapsulated a lot about him, Mm -hmm. but can you talk more about what is this paragraph represents in terms of the whole book of his mentality and what Miriam is facing with him? Because mm-hmm. he he does love her, but she's yeah. kind of an object.
1: <laughs> yeah, so Harry is a fascinating character. And for me, he really did speak to how humans work. Even in my own experience, there's a way in which we're always fighting within ourselves to be better people, right? And, and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. But one thing that is consistent with Harry's case is that he does look back on these things and he thinks, well, um, why did I do that? And what could be the cause of it? But again, um, his ra- his reasoning is always a little bit flawed. His perspective is, a, is always a little bit um, faulty so that he's not quite thinking about how to move forward in the most I guess humane way though he does believe he's being humane he he has so much shame so much guilt from his past which speaks to this idea of um you know like inherited burdens trauma abuse if you grow up in a sort of unhealthy environment, how that affects you in the future. And it almost seems like he has this one track mind that everything now boils down to that background, that, um, you know, like dysfunctional upbringing, the racist upbringing, and the way the, the issues are coming from that one particular point. And the solution must therefore also come from his fixing of that problem.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that's interesting about him is that he's, he's got this dichotomy, right? He's, he's got this singular purpose to sort of erase everything. But one of the things you mentioned about him early on is the first kind of opening scene. He's going to Africa when he's about 12 years old with his family and they go to Tanzania. And so he's confronted directly with how incredibly racist and privileged his parents are and how they treat other people. And it's really an abomination and one of the things that you mention about him is kind of that he is of two minds he's thinking that he's he's comparing himself to slaves and he's saying you know it's blasphemy to compare yourself to the slaves my first mind told me but i am mm-hmm. suffering my second mind insisted and we kind of see this throughout the whole book is that he really is trying to be better. And I think he really believes, you know, that he can overcome the way he was brought up, but the way he was brought up is so ingrained in him. And so Mm -hmm. he's really, I think, struggling. I think like so many people, whether you grew up with overtly racist parents or not, or just recognizing how racist the system is.
1: Right. Um, You know, it's uh, I appreciate your reading of the novel because I think you see I think you see the heart of the novel. Honestly, when I was preparing, you know, to write this novel, it actually is a difficult it was a difficult novel to write because I had to balance things out. And at the same time, I didn't want to shy away from the point of the novel, the character that I was trying to create, I didn't want to shy away from that kind of person who might not be a singular person in society, but is a sort of embodiment of um, different kinds of personalities in society, which is why the novel is satirical. But beyond that, I'll say that when I was um, preparing to write the novel, um, I did a lot of like qualitative research. So by that, I mean like interviews and just observing of, of people. So the most obvious kind of research that you will see in the novel is, you know, my travels to through Tanzania, um, through Ghana, obviously Nigeria. But what some people don't realize is I spent a lot of time observing people in the U.S. You know, I listened to a lot of conversations. I listened to conversations not just of you know African Americans, not just of immigrants from you know um, Asia, Latin America, but I also listen to conversations pertaining to white Americans, Caucasian Americans, and you hear all sorts of things, and if you ask directly, people are actually honest with you about the way their family lives are, the way their families function, the kind of arguments they have um, within families that are um a mixture of liberal and conservative whatever those words mean because we can see how um there's a lot of gray area um in those categories anyway so what I was noticing repeatedly in these conversations um one thing was that even when the supposedly liberal-minded individuals would speak to me they would say things like what Harry says you know um they would they would sort of um I guess it's easier for me to just give you an example, you know, so like there was a woman I was speaking with and, um, and you know, there's a lot of educational conversations in the novel where we talk about who deserves, for instance, tenure. Right. Um, and so like I would have conversations with people who would look at me and say, well, of course you're going to be fine because, um, you know, there's affirmative action. So you're, you're, definitely going to to get it get you know the job or the position or whatever it was and i would think to myself isn't it interesting that in your support of me you are citing the one thing that doesn't actually represent um, my qualifications right you 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 neglect to point out that i probably that, that there is a great likelihood that i will be the most qualified candidate there and that if i got the job that I would get the job because of my credentials, because of my qualifications. Now your supportive mind goes to the fact that I would get it because they're looking out for a diversity candidate. And so there are just different ways in which even the liberal-minded, well-intentioned, supportive um, individual um, also shows by accident, their own biases. And it is human. It is completely human. And that is why, you know, from just a few readers, not everybody, clearly, but when people say, oh, Harry is terrible, Harry is this horrible character, how could he, you know, I think to myself, he's not that horrible, he's just human. it is just that on the page, everything comes together in a condensed form. And so it feels like you're you're getting... Maybe sometimes an overdose of it, depending on your, your perspective, depending on your entry into it. But if you're a certain person entering that novel from a certain perspective, it isn't an overdose. It's just life. That's just what your experience is on a daily level, you know?
0: Yeah. And he is trying.
1: <laughs> He's definitely trying. You know, Harry is a, a flawed person. Harry is kind of terrible at times, but Harry is still human.
0: I mean, and that's why we read. We, we read to try to understand the human journey.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely. And again, I'll point out, I, I just want to emphasize that again, it is, it is a satirical novel, right? So when I say it's satirical, I think the other thing about writing a satire is, first of all, I don't think I'm ever going to do a satire again. It is very difficult to pull off. But the thing about writing a satirical novel is that you want to show society as society is. This was my attempt to show a certain aspect of society as society appears depending on your perspective again, because how you how you engage with the novel, depending on your race, your background, your socioeconomic status will probably differ. But in any case, this kind of a novel is, an, is a sort of exaggeration. And like I said earlier, it's a it's a condensation of everything into a very confined space. So it might feel a lot, right? It it might feel overwhelming for some people, but that's the point of what a novel like this does. And there's like a lot of, there are many examples historically, like when, for instance, um, Jonathan Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels, that was a very um, strong criticism of, uh, of British society. You know? So Gulliver goes, he travels. So it's also in that form of uh, a travel narrative, which is kind of what's going on here with Harry a little bit. But the, the Gulliver's travels is basically divided into four different books, four different countries that Gulliver goes to. And in each one he's you know um, criticizing certain aspects of British government. Um, And, you know, for instance, if you're a scientist, an astronomer at that time period, you would be highly offended, right? Because that's where the criticism is, right? He's criticizing that specific group of people that those people who were, you know, I don't know, creating false science, the quacks are amongst them. um, That's where the criticism was. Um, Sakai is aiming to criticize a certain aspect of society, a certain practice within society, not always necessarily the people, not necessarily the human bodies, but the practice as well, right? Um, and I, I think that's that's what a novel like this does, but it is very, it's very easy to misunderstand a satirical novel and also not everybody's understanding, humor, um, et cetera, you know, like, people's reading habits are not the same people's understanding will not be the same. And so it's a very tricky um, genre to pull off.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Miriam. She is from Nigeria. You know, they're young when they meet, I think around 18, 19. And she, in contrast to him, is she's such a good person. Like she can't walk by something happening in the world um without helping. Like if someone's sick, she and falls down, for example. There's a bigger scene in there. She wants to help. She sees someone in peril. She wants to help. But for some reason, she really likes him. I mean they have their problems, but she has like a purity to her. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about her. And is there any of you in her?
1: (laughs) Well, she's a fascinating character and I, I do love Miriam. The thing of Miriam is that there was a there is a different novel in which I tell you a lot about her life um, that I don't know if that novel will ever come out. It is not quite complete, um, but that novel existed before she presented herself in this novel. Um, so. Again, it, it, it boils back to this, and maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I do have the one-track mind where I'm obsessed with the ways our childhoods form the people we become, how they inform the, the people we become. Um, so she also has this very unfortunate, traumatic background in that other novel that you don't see here, which is fine. Um Uh, she, she comes from a family. Well, she came, she lost her parents at a very young age. She grew up with her, her older brother, who was a very wonderful older brother, but then they, they were displaced and I won't go into the, 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 the story about how that happened. But at some point she falls sick and her brother believes that she is dead. And so he leaves her in the hospital the doctors are sure that she's dead and so he leaves her and he pursues his other life and of course he he grieves and he mourns her but she ends up waking up so the doctor and the wife adopt her but that is a very unstable family as well and so she uh you know, she goes up with a lot of like hurts, instability, while the wife of the doctor is really kind to her, really loves her. She's also sort of a victim and a mess. And, you know, and some might say unfit to raise a child like Miriam. However, they, you know, they 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 raise her. They obviously pay for her education abroad. Um, so that's how she ends up in New York City. Getting a, 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 you know, a, a, an education uh, in in a university in in New York, an international education, and but she is a she's a product of her background, and giving the background that she has, she is very caring. She is, um, she is a person who wants to help. She is a person who is patient to a fault, right? So that explains why she. She hangs around Harry as much. She's really open. She's really accepting, right? She doesn't, she questions, but she doesn't question to the point of condemnation, right? So she, she, she wants to understand Harry. She is open to, you know, seeing where did you get your name from? Like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? But um, it's she, she is, like I said, in the end, patient to a fault. Now, is there a part of me in her Probably in some ways, uh, in a way that's similar to the parts of me that might also be in Harry, which is that um, idea of a very unstable upbringing or background where it does sort of inform the person you become. So she is abused in a different kind of way than Harry, and it makes her a different kind of person than Harry. She doesn't grow up in a, in a country that is facing the same kind of racism, so she's she's different, but then she comes into the U.S. and experiences it in a different way from how Harry is handling it. Um, so, you know, that idea of being in the U.S. as an immigrant and observing things and trying to be open-minded, that definitely springs from my experiences as an immigrant in the U.S. observing things and trying to be open-minded, you know, in general, I would say that I, but also even Harry, like I do, we do want to, I think many humans, at least when young, do want to help, do want to um, fix things, um, do want to find ways to make society better. I will say where I am right now, I'm more frustrated about what's going on in our society, especially here. It's it's right now in the U.S. and all over the world, things are quite depressing. But, you know, that's why you write as well, so that you can have these conversations and find the little glimmers of hope.
0: How old were you when you came to America?
1: I was 10 years old. I was 10. We came to Boston, uh, Massachusetts. Um, it was... <laughs> It was the beautiful time. It was, you know, very jarring the experience of leaving your country for the first time, and uh, arriving in this foreign country. But it was a it's a it was a foreign country that everybody said was like the dream, you know. Um, and so there was that promise um, when we came, and for a while everything was, you know, fine. But you know, the longer you stay in any place, the more you learn what the place is, and this idea of belonging you learn the ways in which you could belong and you learn the ways in which you might never actually belong Um, and you know that's a process that happens over the course of um Decades. (laughs) I'm now 41, 41 41.5. I sound like a little child when I say that because children are always counting the months. But um, I am now, um, you know, 41 years old and I'm still learning the ways in which I could belong in the country and the ways in which I might never belong. And the irony is that I have lived here for 31 plus years. Um, And it still feels sometimes that the society is telling me that you're not you don't belong
0: here. (laughs) I know it's so amazing. You know, you spent more of your life here, a substantial amount than in Nigeria. And yes, yet what I hear from you is that there is a certain amount of alienation that you don't know if you can ever overcome both both from society coming at you and maybe something inside yourself of of belonging and at home.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, that's the dilemma of anybody in the diaspora, right? So we're always negotiating this idea of belonging. But um, even beyond that, even in the publishing world, it's interesting how it plays out in even the most unexpected ways where it, it does sometimes... You do get the sense that people want you, even your audiences, forget the actual publishers because I wouldn't even put this on them. I'll just say in general, you learn that even readers sometimes feel more comfortable if you write about Nigeria. They seem to feel that that's what you should know more of. But in my mind, I'm like, actually, if I write about Nigeria, especially historically, that's a whole lot more research than I found were to find about the U.S. because I live in the U.S. I've lived here for such a long time. Um, and this is the place I know. And I might even know in some ways better than a, a, a native, well, I should say a, a, a domestic-born uh, American because I also have that international, like I have the multiplicity of gaze, right? So I can can look at what's going on here from from an outside lens in in as much as I can also look at it from the like inside. Um, So there's just, you know, there are different ways in which this idea of you belong, you don't belong plays out. in the, even in the, in the career that I've chosen, you know, I, I write, but I do find that people sometimes want to pigeonhole you. They want you pigeonholed, write about African and African issues, write about women and women's issues. Um, that feels more comfortable for some readers. Um, and then because my debut novel and my collection, um, were, you know, LGBTQ themed, Uh, people do, people have now expected me to write about that only. And so there's a lot of pigeonholing happening. That being said, I don't mind it as much as maybe I should. I do mind it sometimes, but I don't mind it all that much sometimes because it is the way humans work. It's the way we understand the world. It's the way we process. These categories help us to to make sense of things. So to an extent it is understandable, but I do hope that the audiences allow their minds to be open when they see work that is not necessarily catering to those um, expectations. Um, I hope that they are able to process those works with an open heart as well. Although I'll say that um, in Harry Sylvester, but there's a little bit of like a tender moment of uh, LGBTQ (laughs) relationship going on. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of something for, you know, people who want the African part, the women's part. There's a little bit of everything for everybody in Harry Sylvester Bird.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about some of those parts, but I want to uh, go back to this idea of belonging, because one of the ways in, in which the satire goes like all the way is mm-hmm. some of the, the the groups and desires that Harry has. So for instance, we see once he gets to New York that he's going to this group called the Transracial Anon. So yeah. basically trying to confront his whiteness. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about this group?
1: <laughs> well, so one of the things I love about this group is this idea of holding up a mirror to themselves, right? So. the the idea that um, we must look ourselves um, in the mirror to be able to do better than we are. And the the irony is that they do that, but the whole philosophy behind their group is just so flawed that um, it becomes almost comical, but also more tragic than comical because you can see that they are actually trying to do better Um, but they are, you know, just going about it the wrong, all the wrong ways. Um, so in the end, another part of the, you know, the, the sort of hope, the glimmer of hope by the end is that even Harry leaves the group, you know, he's fed up. He's like, this has to be a hoax basically. And he leaves, he leaves, um, he's going to find a different sort of solution. Who knows what it'll be, but, um, you know, so that's the thing about the novel. It is sort of, pointing out all the ways in which we might have good intentions, right, but all the ways in which we might go about it in the wrong way, right, Um, and that also being said, you know, there are many, you know, examples of people who do what this group is attempting to do, so I was specifically focused on the Black African experience in this novel uh, in the sense of This sort of co-opting of even the Black body, right? So I guess part of my, I don't know, influences or the sort of, quote-unquote, inspiration for the characters that belong to that group would be, you know, real-life people. We've all heard of the Rachel Dolezal story, which is more complex than Harry's story, and I don't even really want to compare Harry to that because there's, you know, from my understanding, which maybe is also incomplete. There is a lot of, um, there might be, I should say, there might be some maybe almost criminal activity that happened with Rachel Dolezal's situation that I don't want to bring to Harry's situation, but I do want to point out that there is a similarity in terms of this unstable past, this unstable childhood, and how it affects the person the adult becomes. Because from my understanding of it, um, you know, Rachel did not have a very stable loving background. There's a lot of conflict in that family, but I guess some might say what family doesn't have conflict. Um, but there's also the the, the um, examples of people like um, Martina Big, who is a, a German blonde white woman who decided that she wanted to be in a Kenyan, you know, like she's she's now a black Kenyan woman. Um, She has a Kenyan name um, and she she was actually welcomed um, by some members of Kenyan society. Um, So there there are quite a number of these. um, And I could name more like more of these these real life people who in some ways actually identify with African, like they want to be an African. They they believe that they are were actually supposed to be Africans, right? And they go about becoming African. And so that also speaks to those experiences in a way that I could not actually understand, but I can sort of express from that from the perspective of an actual African looking in on it, right? So I'm watching these actions, these behaviors. And in some ways, it should be a sort of compliment that they want to be Africans. They see the beauty in it. And that's what the novel also does. This this idea of Black is beautiful. And it is wonderful that people are seeing the beauty in Blackness, you know. Um, But it's also a question of what it really means that they want to be African. Where is it coming from that you want to be African? And again, not just African, but black African, what does it really mean? What does that behavior do? What is the effect of that? And and the the novel does not have answers. there, There are no answers. It's just a question of how do we as a society have conversations surrounding this in a way that is more productive than total condemnation? And while some people might want to totally you know wholesale condemn Harry, I think there might be more to the conversation than that, you know. Um, again, given his background, given the fact that we're all humans and we all mess up, but what does it mean for society? And beyond that, what is it, what is it? Why do these people feel like they need to do that? Why is this their identity? Where is that coming from? Because it, if there's more than one and there are, then it means something I think. And it merits some kind of conversation as well.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating because you mentioned in the book, you have something called racial reassignment that um, Harry Mm -hmm. is interested in. And talking about Rachel Dolezal, who, you know, was white but claimed she was black, is we we've come to this point in our society where you can convert. You want to be a Jew? You can convert. You can become a Mormon. You can, um, if you feel like you were born the wrong gender, you can, you can have surgery. You can change your identity. You can do everything you can to feel your most authentic. But then, around race, if you were born the wrong race, it's it's like taboo.
1: So these are the conversations that the book is also trying to have. And again, the book is not equating um, the racial reassignment with any of the other, for instance, with um, you know LGBTQ rights and trans- transgender rights, um, it's not trying to equate any of those because they are different. And it is very clear that the historical implications, the historical burden surrounding racism, surrounding slavery, the slave trade, and, and all of that is quite different, right? But it is still a conversation that should be had in a way that is not sort of antagonistic, right? Because I think we come to these things um, very defensively sometimes. um, And we come to these things um, with very clear political correctness inclinations um, because to say otherwise would be, to somehow disrespect a certain, you know, class or sector or section, segment, whatever, of society. Um, But I do think more than saying, is it right or is it wrong, right? That black and white notion, that binary notion, I think there's something there to be discussed about where it's coming from, for one thing why there's a difference between the different kinds of transitioning. And if there is a way to go about it the correct way, right? I don't have those answers, but I think in general, the books I write, including Under the Udala Trees, is a sort of opening up of the conversation in a way that, um, that allows society to enter the conversation with, maybe less a pack. That being said, Harry Sylvester Bird. some people would say, oh, it's, it's, you know, a very sort of harsh book. I kind of disagree just because I am in that position to write it. I am that Black African woman. If a white person were to write it, it would be definitely just don't do it. What were you thinking kind of thing, right? But from again this angle of entry myself being a black african woman i feel like people might be i might be wrong if if you are a reader who is not completely stuck by the binary system of political correctness you might be more willing to engage with the conversations because in the first place, you will say to yourself, well, she is a Black African writing this. Why would she do that? So it allows a little bit more room to enter a conversation that is very fraught, right? Um, it, 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 you might not get, or the, the writer, I don't know. We'll see what happens. It hasn't come out yet. Um, but I'm imagining that the writer might not be as uh, rapidly lynched, <laughs> Um If she is within the group, if she comes from the group that is um, generally the group that is disenfranchised, but also is opening the conversation. Again, I want to point out that I am not saying that Harry goes about everything the right way, that Harry is a, a great person. I am not. I am not. It is a critique of race and racism and slavery and all of that. It is definitely that. But I just want us to maybe look beyond the obvious you know, beyond that obvious narrative, which, you know, we'll see if we can do and, you know, it might be a complete fail Um, and that's the risk in writing a novel like this.
0: Um You know, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned Gull- Gulliver's Travels and this is in some ways a travel novel and mm-hmm. in the, the, the last about third of the book, uh Harry and Miriam go to Ghana on a semester abroad and so they end up confronting um slavery in a in a really in-your-face way. They go to visit the Cape Coast castle, the the dungeons and the places where all the Africans were held right before they they got into the ships. Harry has this viscerally, physically um he he basically he has a, a physical reaction to being there which in a way only probably magnifies his white fragility because one of the things that we have to do is we have to look um, straight at these things as directly as they are. And I'm curious to hear more from you about why it was important for you to set this in Ghana and for that to be a part of the the novel.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go back to, a place like Ghana, it could have been Tanzania because there was also slave trading there. There are many other countries it could have been Nigeria, but Ghana is one of the most well-known places. Um, you know, Cape Coast Castle slash dungeon, depending on your um, <laughs> your perspective. It was a dungeon if you were black. <laughs> if you were white, then it was a castle. Um, but in any case, I, I I feel as you know, again, an immigrant to this country who might not have all the same knowledge as a domestic born person but from my understanding as a semi-outsider um it would seem that a lot of the issues with race in this country stem from slavery you know that history of slave trading that affected uh the Americas so badly um in a way that it feels like we can't we, we are making strides and moving forward. But um, again, this idea healing is not linear. So we, we, we backtrack a lot. <laughs> um, and so I just wanted to go back to that history to sort of highlight in small ways, the way it's still present. In our contemporary society, whether we are aware of it or not, and in some ways, Harry was not necessarily aware of it till he went to that to that Cape Coast Castle on that tour. And you know, uh, again, it depends on who the person is who goes on that on that tour, who the characters are, and how they're able to identify or not identify with history. Right. So I, again, I did a lot of qualitative research. I observed people, I talked with people about, you know, that that experience of walking through that tour. Actually, I think we went to Cape Coast Castle um, a couple of times at least. um, And just having conversations with Black foreigners and, um, you know, white just listening to conversations of like white tourists, et cetera, um, and just seeing what it was like, you see the different ways in which people enter an experience like that, right? The ones who feel really somehow implicated to the point of defensiveness, the ones who feel like it's almost an act of history that is so far removed that it's not necessarily applicable, but it's interesting as an artifact. Um, The ones who feel like, you know, even from the African side of things, Um, I saw conversations between Africans and African-Americans. It's this idea that, well, the Africans were the greedy ones who sold the African-Americans into slavery so that it was um, it was due to the, the African greed that allowed the slave trade to succeed. And then there were the Africans who were defensive and saying, no, if and this is this part features in the novel because I thought it was an important conversation, right? If 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 someone comes with their guns and you only have you know bows and arrows or whatever, of course they have the power. Of course, even if you want to, you know, protect your own brother, you might not be able to. You might give in to these other people. So there were all these interesting conversations going on, and you know, again, the novel is a conversation. I do not have the answers, but it is like I said earlier, a novel that is basically laying out the contemporary conversation surrounding race and racism, um, you know, in our society. Um, And that's really what what we see is just conversations um, that these characters are having and the ways they're moving through the world of the novel.
0: And last thing to to touch on that you mentioned earlier was the LGBTQ plus uh, element to the book. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about belonging, and there is a character. I'm assuming I shouldn't give it away. It's up to yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I will just say there is a character in there whose society in general thoughts would definitely not approve of. Uh, gay love and this this character has a secret affair with the same gender and it is very secret but very moving and that search for belonging seems to in a way and it comes out in Harry too and some of the other characters that when you can't be everything you want you're kind of rotten to the people around you.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I mean, you can give it away because I will be reading from that part, actually. So it's it's fine. I think it's important for for me to even talk about that aspect of the novel um, because a novel that is as satirical as this one is, sometimes you forget that there are moments of gentleness there are moments where we see the humanity of these characters. And, you know, as readers, sometimes we gloss over those moments because we're so hung up on the negative aspect. It's like, you know, when you write a book and they're like a billion good reviews, but you focus on the negative reviews, right? So sometimes readers or some, sometimes the readers will actually do that as well. They'll read the entire novel and they'll focus on all the you know, ways in which Harry is a terrible character. But there are those beautiful moments of love, of gentleness within the novel that um, do deserve to be seen. Um, And so that is um, one of those moments. And uh, the character you're speaking about is Chevy Chevrolet, who is Harry's mother, um, who, you know, basically is stuck pretending she's stuck in this sham of a marriage, you know, but she she then, um, you know, carries out this affair relationship with, with a, a neighbor named Lucinda. Um, and it's one of the most tender moments um, in the novel. And even Harry notices it because he's witnessing it. And what's even more astonishing is that Wayne, the father of Harry, but also the husband of Chevy also witnesses it. And there's just this, Moment of it's a beautiful moment of grace, in my opinion. Although I wrote it, um, <laughs> we'll let the readers say what they think, I guess. But, uh, there, uh, the, to me, it seems that it's a beautiful moment of grace where Harry looks at his father and expects that the father will, you know, stop it or get angry or, you know, like maybe stomp out whatever the appropriate reaction or whatever the st- stereotypical reaction. Um, but he doesn't. He allows it to be, and, and, and Harry gets the sense that it, it, the, the, the affair has probably been going on for quite a while, and Wayne allows it to be. So there's, there's, there are moments where these characters are not actually the horrible people that they would lead you to think they are, <laughs> um, and that's just one of those moments.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer, and maybe it influenced you?
1: Uh, Sure. So I will read Chino Achebe, An Image of Africa, Racism in Conrad's Heart of Darkness from the Massachusetts Review, which was published in 1977. And I'll just read about um, different portions, about half a page worth. Heart of Darkness projects the image of Africa as, quote, the other world, the antithesis antithesis of Europe and therefore of civilization, a place where man's vaunted intelligence and refinement are finally mocked by triumphant bestiality. Joseph Conrad was a thoroughgoing racist that This simple truth is glossed over in criticisms of his work is due to the fact that white racism against Africa is such a normal way of thinking that its manifestations go completely unremarked. Students of Heart of Darkness will often tell you that Conrad is concerned not so much with Africa as the deterioration of one European mind caused by solitude and sickness. They will point out to you that Conrad is, if anything, less charitable to the Europeans in the story than he is to the natives, that the point of the story is to ridicule Europe's civilizing mission in Africa. A Conrad student informed me in Scotland that Africa is merely a setting for the disintegration of the mind of Mr. Kurtz, which is partly the point. Africa as setting and backdrop, which eliminates the African as human factor. Africa as a metaphysical battlefield devoid of all recognizable humanity into which the wandering European enters at his peril. Can nobody see the preposterous and perverse arrogance in thus reducing Africa to the role of props for the breakup of one petty European mind? But that is not even the point. The real question is the dehumanization of Africa and Africans, which this age-long attitude has fostered and continues to foster in the world. And the question is whether a novel which celebrates this dehumanization, which depersonalizes a portion of the human race, can be called a great work of art. My answer is no, it cannot. I do not doubt Conrad's great talents. Even Heart of Darkness has its memorably good passages and moments. And I'll stop there.
0: Do you want to share more about why you chose that?
1: Well, um, on the journey to writing this novel, because this novel is sort of... um, speaking back to those conversations um, regarding race and, you know, the objectification of Africa, the dehumanization of Africans. um, The Harry Sylvester Bird is a novel that sort of speaks back to that. There's a way in which, although we are seeing Africa just from the lens of um, tourism, we are not focusing on the on Africa in the ways that, you know, authors such as Conrad and, you know, many other even contemporary authors have done. Um, We are looking at the beautiful aspects of the nation and of the people, Um, at least the more beautiful aspects of the nation and of the people. It's a little bit more holistic in Harry Sylvester Bird. Um, I also picked this this excerpt because it reminded me of um, something that James Baldwin said, said, and it's a quote, and it goes something like, the victim who is able to articulate the situation of the victim has ceased to be a victim. He he or she has become a threat. And I just like that idea of a person who is, quote unquote, a victim coming out of that victimhood simply by being able to articulate what that situation of victimhood looks like. Um, I think Chinua Achebe did that in his essay. Whether people agree with it or not, he was able to articulate that, and in that case became, you know, uh, a force to contend with. And, um, you know, and of course, James Baldwin has done the same or did the same exact thing. And, you know, I hope that more and more authors are able to articulate their situations um, so that they rise from that um, status of being you know, having to play the victim, basically.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard, or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Um, yes, this is the section that I um, mentioned earlier, um, and it pertains with, uh, pertains to Chevy um, Harry's Harry's uh, mother. Okay, so Harry is watching this this scene, and he says. I'd never seen Chevy that way before. I had no idea where Jake could have been. When Chevy raised her head from the crook of Lucinda's neck, she reached her face up towards Lucinda and Lucinda reached her face down towards Chevy and their lips locked in a slow and sensuous way. There was a longing in the kiss that they shared, their eyes open at first and then slowly closing as the kiss deepened. I heard my doorknob turning and then the opening of my door behind me and yet I could not bring myself to turn away from the woman. By the time my brain processed the sounds, Wayne was already standing by my side, also looking at Lucinda and Chevy and not saying a word. I looked up at him for one long moment and he just stood rigidly watching the women. Dad, I said in an almost whisper. He looked sternly at me, a slight imperceptible imperceptible shake of the head like a command which I knew meant that I was not to say a word about this ever. Instantly, I knew that he already knew that this had been going on for some time. Together, we turned back to the view outside my window and we stood there watching Chevy and Lucinda kissing each other passionately, tenderly, and lovingly, nothing like I'd ever known my mother to be never had i seen her this way with wayne if she could feel this way with someone then what was she doing with wayne and by
0: extension what was she doing with me and do you want to say anything more about that
1: yeah just to say that it's um it's one of the tender moments in the novel and there are moments of tenderness throughout the novel um and you know this is a situation in which we would not um we would not expect someone like uh Chevy, who is you know from this con- con- very conservative background, um, we wouldn't expect her to be engaging in like a you know same-sex affair. Um but you know, in this case, this is where we see humanity at work, right? So this is Chevy as a human being and in this very you know loving relationship and we also see what what appears to be a loving relationship that is very different from the relationship she has with Wayne but we also see Wayne who allows this love to continue right this this romance to continue um he doesn't get in the way with uh, in the way of it and you know it's it's remarkable because this is despite his very conservative mentality, um, you also see this, you know, wonderful humanity at play, um, even on the, on the part of, uh, of, of, of Wayne.
0: Where do you write?
1: <laughs> Where do I write? Well, I usually write wherever I find the mind space to write. So if, I, if anything comes to mind, I just sit and I write it. Um, I love using the notes section on my phone, um, for instance, if I'm on the road and I don't have access to my laptop, but currently it's summer, so I write you know, on, a, on this chair. <laughs> it's my faux fur chair, and I have a seat table that I just put my uh, you know, laptop on, and I just write it right on the corner or in the corner of my bedroom, and so it's easy for me to jump from the bed to that setup without having to change rooms. Um, and I have a nice plant by my side, which I just think is beautiful, but it's also a, a, a great air purifier.
0: <laughs> and what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Well, mentally, I often escape into audiobooks. Um, I, I love just listening to 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 audiobooks. I use audibles. I also use the library app called Libby. Um, and I've list, I don't know how many books I've listened to that way, but very, very many. Um, and then for physical escape, uh, there's a beautiful trail not far from where I live. I, I'm here in Silver Spring um, and it's called Sligo Creek Trail. and sometimes I just perch myself in the park on the trail. Um, other times I walk the trail and it's just a very lovely trail with a lot of tall, mature trees that form really nice shades <laughs> from the sun even on really hot days. I, I feel very I don't know
0: sheltered. You show your work to first to get feedback.
1: Oftentimes my mother is my first reader and my sisters. And I also have an adoptive father who takes a look at a lot of things. Um, for for in his case, um he 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 can't he tells me he can't really read well with his eyes. His eyes bother him so oftentimes I'm reading aloud to him and asking him to tell me how it sounds um, and he's pretty good at finding mistakes. Um, one of my sisters uh, she holds a PhD in African, African-American and Caribbean literature. So I go to her, of course. Um, and my mother is also a writer, although she's not a published writer. So they are, the family basically is my go-to. And then after that, I go to my agent.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I actually like to read all rejection and I like to acknowledge all rejection, all my rejections. Um, I read the letters carefully. I like to see what I can take from the feedback. I think it's really important to be able to look at feedback and see what aspects ring true, and to see what ways I might be able to improve. But that being said, um, I also try to remember that taste is subjective, and you know that all literature is biased, as are the readers, and so you know. It's also good to listen to my gut, which I try to do and rely on my own sense of, you know, how best to be, you know, how best to write what I'm trying to write. You know, society has never been the most reliable arbiter of morality. So I also try to turn inward when I'm looking for certain kinds of answers.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I don't have a favorite word. I use the words interesting and gentle often. Um, I use interesting with and without irony. I use gentle because it it matters to me. Um, you know, gentleness matters to me, and I try to make I try to move gently through the world for the most part. Um, I don't know. In a, in some ways, Harry Sylvester is not the most gentle book I've ever written. Um, but my debut novel um, under the Udala trees is quite a gentle book, and in general. That's the kind of novel I like to write, um, unless I'm called to, you know, writing a different kind of book like Harry.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It was so fun to chat with you.
0: If you like today's show with Chinelo Okparanta, author of the novel Harry Sylvester Bird, check out my interview with James Hannaham author of the novel, Delicious Foods. We talked about slave labor, resisting change in one's life, and how we cannot escape the injustice of our world. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rabkin. Thank you for listening.